Well, thank you for uh, coming back in an afternoon session on a Saturday. You are brave. You are to be commended. Uh, what a privilege to be here. Uh, when I first became uh, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, I had been teaching at the institution for a long time. I uh, came to the seminary in 1985 after serving for nine years at a college in Phoenix that is now called Arizona Christian University, was back then called Southwestern uh, Bible College. And uh, so I taught at the seminary, and then uh, Chuck Swindoll became the president. Dr. Walvert hired me, and I served under Dr. Walvert, Dr. Campbell, and then Dr. Chuck Swindoll became the president, and he asked me to come into leadership, and so I became the dean. And then uh, he asked me to be his provost, which meant I was to do whatever he wanted me to do on campus when he was off and off campus when he was on. And, uh, and now for the last 14 years, I've served as president. And, uh, but when I, when I first became president, I uh, became a part of what is called the Fellowship of Evangelical Seminary Presidents, uh, FESP, we affectionately call it. And it is uh, composed of all of those uh, uh, presidents and their spouses who serve in evangelical seminary. Uh, there are a lot of evangelicals who serve in uh, university settings and in uh, college settings that are not evangelical, and those are great people for witness, uh, and we need to pray for them, obviously, but this is a, a group of uh, seminaries that uh, would band around an evangelical uh, statement of faith like the Lausanne uh, Covenant of the Lausanne Movement, and uh, uh, so we have uh, from uh, dispensational to reform to Pentecostal to uh, Wesleyan, and, uh, and yet all of them would uh, have a high view of Scripture and a high view of Christ. And, uh, and there is a core fellowship rallied around the gospel that is uh, enjoyable. Uh, I was sitting at a table, and uh, the president of Fuller, uh, Rich Mao, was sitting at the other end of the table, and uh, Dr. Clyde Cook from uh, Biola University, who, when he was alive, was sitting there. Dr. Walt Kaiser, who was the president of Gordon-Conwell at the time. And we were all at a table, and so Rich Mao yells down the end of the table. He said, hey, Bailey. You know, and I mean, I, I barely knew him. He said, do you guys at Dallas still think there's going to be sacrifices in the millennium? And he was baiting me to, uh, you know, just see how I would respond, because that's a... It's not only a controversial title to those who don't think there will be a millennium, uh, but even among those of us who think there will be a millennium, there's a question about sacrifice and what does that mean and what does that say about the death of Christ, etc. So in, in great jest, I uh, sort of shouted back down the table and I said, uh, Rich, it's going to be the best smelling barbecue you've ever smelled in your life. I said, you take the best barbecue you've ever been to and just jack it up, you know, to a Jewish, zealous, where Steve, to a zealous Jewish barbecue, uh, you will have it. And uh, what a, a sweet smelling savor is going to be tremendous. Well, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, and there's a lot more to do with that, but we, we do have a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, they rag on me if I've found another dispensation in the Bible yet, and uh, I uh, tell them, what are you guys going to be doing when we're in the millennium? And uh, we just, uh, we have some good fellowship and some good fun, and we need to have it that, at that level. But uh, there are four temples that are referenced uh, in the scriptures. Uh, not to be confused with the tabernacle, which was, I call it the Porto Temple uh, in the wilderness. Uh, but uh, when it was built under Solomon, you, you have the Solomonic Temple. Uh, and then you have uh, that temple destroyed in 586, finally in 586 BC by the Babylonians. And for 70 years, Israel does not have a temple. While they are in exile outside the land, uh, the people began to be deported in about 606 BC and came back in about 536 BC. The temple was destroyed in 586 BC and ultimately rebuilt in 516 BC. The fun part about scripture is that the Bible had predicted that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. Whether you take that to be the people, the deportation and the return, that's 70 years, or after three successive invasions, you have 586 to 516, that's 
70 years. So whether you're dealing with the people of Israel or the temple, God was right. It's a 70-year exile. And so the Solomonic temple was destroyed, and then uh, Zerubbabel is asked by God to come back and rebuild the post-exilic temple. That, that ultimately becomes known as the second temple, and some secular uh, authors would call it the Herodian temple because Herod uh, expands the platform and doesn't really do anything with the temple itself so much, but pretty much beautifies the place and expands it, makes it, you know, as a, a placation to the Jews, makes it a pretty luxurious place. According to uh, Thessalonians, we know that uh, the Antichrist, uh, the man of sin, the lawless one, will come into the temple and will take his seat in the temple and exalt himself as God. So during the tribulation, we would understand that there will be a temple. Then the question comes, is there a temple for the millennium? Is there a future temple that will be built in Jerusalem uh, for the fulfillment of what seems to be expected in Ezekiel 40 to 48? And that would be called Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel's temple. Now, let me give you a timeline that we've all been talking about, but, uh, uh, and, and Michael put uh, one of his charts up there, so uh, not to be outcharted, uh, let me give you a chart as well. Gonna, let me fix my collar here with this. It's, uh, it's going to bother me the rest of the afternoon. Here we go. Okay. Thank you. Uh, from here to eternity, what does the future hold? We understand that the next event on the calendar of God's events with regard to the church is the rapture of the church. And uh, uh, Dr. Spiegel argued for a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, and that is when the church meets the Lord in the air. They, uh, the Lord does not land on planet Earth at that time, but we meet him in the air. Uh, we believe that's followed uh, by the judgment seat of Christ, whether immediately or during the tribulation, uh, or even that takes place during the tribulation. The, the judgment seat of Christ uh, is the next event for the church following the rapture. We believe that will be followed by a seven-year tribulation divided into two parts, the first three and a half years, the second three and a half years, as the Bible describes it, and that will be followed by the second coming of Christ to the earth, as Zechariah 14 that uh, uh, Stephen alluded to, when Christ lands on the Mount of Olives, and, the, and that mountain will split, and uh, uh, that will make a way of escape for the remnant, according to Zechariah chapter 14. So that's the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now often, both the event of the rapture and the return is, is put under an umbrella title of the second coming of Christ. And we understand that, we, we do that. Uh, one is the revelation, the other is the rapture. Uh, my dad gave me a little ditty that helps me remember it. At the rapture, the righteous are taken and the wicked are left behind. But at the second advent, uh, the righteous are kept to go into the kingdom and the wicked are taken. And so those are two different events with two different results. Uh, and we believe it two separate time frames. Uh, we believe that'll be followed by the judgment of the nations called the, sh the, the sheep goat judgment. And that will separate those that will go into the kingdom from those who won't as far as the earthly kingdom is concerned. That's Matthew chapter 25. And so there's the judgment seat of Christ, there's the judgment of the nations, then there's a thousand year earthly kingdom, as we understand it, followed by a release of Satan for a short period of time, where there's a, a final rebellion uh, by some, and then we have the great white throne judgment, which is the final judgment, but prior to eternity. In, in the first resurrection is Christ, those of us who are Christ at his coming, and the second resurrection is the resurrection of the wicked for the great white throne judgment, and that's the, the great white throne judgment that's called the second death. So that's the big picture of what we believe is going to happen in the future. And uh, we're taking apart pieces of this. So I, I wanna talk about the thousand year earthly kingdom and ask and answer the question, why do I believe there will be a millennial temple? Why do I believe there will be a millennium and the temple, but especially the temple 
And by arguing for the temple, I'm going to also be arguing in some respects for the millennium. So let me give you 10 reasons why I believe in a millennial temple. 10 reasons for a millennial temple. And I, there's, there's been models that have been built based upon the description of Ezekiel 40 to 48, as opposed to, this looks different obviously than the uh, tabernacle structure or the temple structure of the Old Testament. One was rectangular, the, this one is more square. And so we're not describing the same thing, and that's an important distinction. So we're going to be talking about it. In the overview of Ezekiel 40 to 48, there is the description of a new temple. There is a description of the new service of worship, which we'll talk about. And there's a different distribution and effect within the land of Israel. So there's a temple, there's the priestly service, and there's land. Now, there's some that believe that Ezekiel is, ha, has an idyllic or an idealistic temple that some scribe sort of dreamed about and said, you know what, uh, a, a, an ideal-looking worship structure for Messiah would be this. But uh, never thinking it would be literal, never thinking it would be on earth. It's just sort of a, you know, a pie in the sky. What would the perfect church look like? Well, what would the perfect temple look like? Uh, but, but I'm going to argue against that for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, let me give you a quotation by a, one of our grads, Randy Price. He says, after the fall of the temple in the city of Jerusalem in 586, the prophet Ezekiel wrote of Israel's future with the same conviction to that which he had expressed when he penned the words of their destruction. Ezekiel is the uh, prophet that uh, sort of overlays or overlaps the final days of Israel before the Babylonians took over and then after the Babylonians took over. Daniel is the prophet uh, of the court. Ezekiel is the prophet sort of of the, of, the, of the temple in terms of emphasis. And together, Ezekiel and Daniel are what we call the exilic prophets. They are the prophets that God used during the exile to address the exiles and in promise what God has for the future of Israel. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 43. As he begins to discuss this temple and what it's going to look like, he says this in verse 6 of chapter 43. And then I heard one speaking to me from the house. Now, if you go back and you find out, God took Ezekiel, who was a exilic prophet from Babylon, in a vision over to Israel, took him up on a high mountain, it says, uh, north, of, and, and north of the city, and showed him in a vision this new city and new temple construction. It is a vision, and that's important to know. It is a prophetic vision of the future, as we understand it, uh, given to Ezekiel, But listen to what he says. Then I heard the one speaking to me from the house. While a man was standing beside me, he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Now here's an important statement. Where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Now in an apocalyptic, or I would like to say a visionary uh, revelation of God, you often have an angel or a messenger from God who is talking to the prophet saying, here's what I want to show you. Here's what God has asked me to show you. And in the dialogue between the prophet and the messenger, and if you go back in chapter 40, this guy is a bronze figure. So if you can imagine a bronze statue type figure who has you know, animation in this vision, a bronze looking man is uh, communicating with Ezekiel. That when they're talking, they're talking about the interpretation and when they are showing, they're showing the vision. Now, why is that important? Because some want to put the conversation as the vision and not just the picture and, and forget that there's being interpretation that's being given that's outside of the picture or that is explaining the picture. So he says to him, this is the place, what I'm showing you, from God's perspective, he says, this is the place of my throne, God said, and the place of the soles of my feet, 
where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by their corpses or their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. In other words, this, there is going to be a day when Christ the Messiah rules and it will be in a place where he will not allow the wicked to defile his courts anymore, which has been a bit of the history of Israel. So I want you to see that this is the place that God is saying where he will dwell with his people and it'll be in holiness, it will be in a phenomenal experience of righteousness. Now, why do I think this is yet future and why do I think it will be on earth? Number one, the placement of Gog and Magog the account of Gog and Magog between, which is in chapters 38 and 39, which is between chapter 36 and chapter 40 to 48, argues for a future eschatological context. You say, how? All right, let me explain. God has promised the restoration of his people. Chapter 36 he then describes, in other words, Israel is going to be returned, they're going to be revived, they're going to be redeemed. And then he describes a future catalytic event with the invasion of the north coming upon Israel and God protecting them in, in this futuristic period of time in 38 to 39. So then you have, here is what will be the result of God coming to, to dwell with his people with a temple structure. The placement of Gog and Magog between the promise of Israel's restoration and recovery and the new temple in Jerusalem, it's put into a future eschatological context, in other words. And obviously, this temple description follows that Gog and Magog scenario. Uh, turn over to chapter 37 with me for a moment. Why am I arguing about this between Ezekiel 36? We'll look at chapter 37 Verse 24, before you ever have this vision, the prophet Ezekiel says, God says through Ezekiel, my servant David will be king over them. Now David is dead and gone. So this is either David resurrected or the Davidic king that he's talking about. And the irony is uh, that you're gonna have David referred to as reigning, you're gonna have Zerubbabel in Haggai 2 uh, referred to as reigning, the 12 disciples will reign, and the church will reign. So that, that, that he mentions David shouldn't be a problem. If it's the son of David and the Messiah is a referent, that's okay too. But David will be there, and he'll be cool, and we'll be all right. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land, now watch this, they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived. Now don't miss that. In the future, Israel will live on the same land that the fathers lived on. That's why I think of a future for the nation of Israel. It's got to be a conclusion from biblical study. Those who don't spiritualize this out of existence. They allegorize it off the page. But the text is, they will live on the land I gave to Jacob in which your fathers lived. They will live on it and their sons and their sons, uh, sons, how long? Forever, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And what will be the effect of this is that that will be a testimony to the nations. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. So the promise of a Messiah, the promise of Israel in the land, a promise uh, of, 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 of a sanctuary all is in this pre-prophetic element, the pre, you know, the prediction, excuse me, before he ever gets to Ezekiel 40 to 48. 
So the context of this, in the future, when there's a return, when they're in the land, forever, the covenant is established, it's peaceful, and by the way, since 586 BC, we've never had this experience yet in the land of Israel. Ask, ask any Jew about their history, uh, any Bible scholar, th this has not happened yet. So either he says it's gonna happen and then he's gonna cancel it, and it's all gonna happen in heaven, but what testimony is heaven to the nations that would still be on earth? That becomes a question. So I just wanna log that one in there for the moment. Number two, the unique dimensions and description of Ezekiel's temple compared to Solomon's or Zerubbabel's argues for a future distinct temple. Now let me stay with me for a moment. I know it's afternoon and I'm gonna do my best to keep animated enough to keep you awake. Some want to see what we have here as a reflection of Solomon's or a past perspective. And they believe that Ezekiel was doing nothing more than sharing his priestly memories uh, at the time of Israel's monarchy to preserve in the people a memory of Solomon's temple. In other words, here is what it looked like, and we never want you to forget it. Uh, the, the problem is that uh, the description of the temple has already been preserved back in the Chronicles and the Kings. You didn't need an extra description of the temple. Uh, number two, uh, you have the prayers of guys like da Daniel in Daniel 9, 3 to 19, were for a future restoration of the people and the temple and the city of Jerusalem, not a reference to the past. Besides that, the description of Ezekiel's temple is different radically different in structure, size, and priestly service and ceremony to that of Solomon's temple. So it doesn't fit Solomon. Well, what, well, what about Zerubbabel? Well, some believe it's a, a, a pattern for the way Zerubbabel should build his temple in the post-exilic period. The problem with that is None of the princes or prophets, the governors or the prophets or the priests involved in rebuilding the post-exilic temple mentioned Ezekiel's description of it at all. You would think that if Ezekiel, the exilic prophet, said, here's the way it should be built, that when in the post-exilic period, when Zerubbabel, stirred on by Haggai, uh, you know, and Zechariah are to get busy, rebuild the temple, you would have thought, well, that's the blueprint. If in fact that was a reference to this temple. They don't build it like Ezekiel described it. And yet, there's no evidence they didn't build it as they were commanded to. And blessing came because of their obedience. And the services in the priesthood that remained in Zerubbabel's temple were the same as that which was under law in the Levitical system with the Solomonic temple. Now you say, well, why is that significant? Because in Ezekiel, we don't have the same temple. We don't have the same description. I, ironically, we, we don't have the, uh, the same furniture. We're going to argue for that in a moment. We don't have the same structure. We don't have the same services. And by the way, we're going to argue, you don't even have the same priesthood in reality. So it can't be Solomon's, look to the past. It can't be Zerubbabel's in the near future, in the post-exilic period, it has to be something that is yet not built. And the land was never allocated to Israel in the post-exilic period like Ezekiel 40 to 48 says it ought to be allocated. Number three, there's a little bit of the structure. It's totally different than you've seen what a, what a tabernacle looks like and what the Old Testament temple looked like. It's a totally radically different structure and construct. Number three, the prediction of, the, of permanent holiness was never fulfilled in the post-exilic period, obviously, certainly wasn't in the day of Christ, and certainly won't be fulfilled in the tribulation. What are we saying? If the prediction of holiness that this 40 to 48 describes is going to be true, it hasn't been true yet. Listen to, uh, look at uh, chapter 43 with me for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 43. Look at verse six. And then I heard one speaking to me from the house while the man was standing beside me. 
And he said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. This is the passage I just quoted to you a few moments ago. Where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Now jump down to the middle of verse 8. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me. And I will dwell with them forever. Now, he's arguing for a description of holiness. Look back at verse 1 of the same chapter. He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, the eastern gate. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Remember, earlier in the book, it left, and it went past the threshold toward the east, past the gate to the east, over the Mount of Olives to the east. And now we have the reverse of that being predicted. The glory of, of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chep, uh, Kebar, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, question. Did the vision of the departing glory, was it fulfilled historically? And look at me and go, yes. Yes. God's glory departed. God allowed Babylon to come in and destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem. The very vision of destruction was fulfilled literally, exactly as God had predicted through Ezekiel it would happen. Well, I'm a duh kind of a person. And therefore, if the glory is going to return from the same direction to which it left, and it's going to come into a place where God is going to fill it with glory again, okay, then I'm expecting the same kind of historical fulfillment of the restoration, return, and glorification of this property as happened in its destruction. To say that one is a vision that has historical fulfillment, but the second one has a vision with no historical fulfillment doesn't fit anybody's hermeneutics, interpretive principles. So the permanent holiness wasn't fulfilled in the post-exilic period, and it certainly won't be fulfilled in the tribulation. And in fact, Jesus chased him out of the, the courtyard, and he says, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise in John 2, and at the end of the synoptics, you've made my, house, my father's house a house, a, 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 you know, a den of thieves. And that's why the temple's going to be destroyed. And Jesus predicts it again. When Jesus predicted the fall of the temple, did it happen? Absolutely, in AD 70. So the question of when will this house be holy? When will this city where this house is be known as the holy city? Number four, here's a big one for me. The fact that the priesthood has not yet been restricted to the Zadokites argues for a future earthly fulfillment to be realized. When you read about the priesthood in 43 to 47 of this book, it is not the same as the Levites of the law. It's not the same privileges. In fact, they are, because of disobedience, moved to the outskirts of this property and the Zadokite priesthood will be the priesthood through which the Messiah Prince priest will ultimately do his thing. We've not ever yet had a Zadokite restricted priesthood. So it's obviously didn't happen in the post-exilic. It obviously didn't happen during the time of Christ. We've not yet had a Zadokite identifiable priesthood which is promised in these passages. Number five, the articles and furniture for sacrifice. The articles and furniture for sacrifice and service are different from those of the Mosaic law. This is an important factor. In fact, I, I, I told you one of the other men that I met with, and I won't say his name because it, you know, you, it might reflect poorly and it doesn't need to reflect poorly on him, 
Because one of the guys that was at the table said, well, when he was asked, do you think there's going to be sacrifices in the millennium? He, he said, no, I don't think so. I think whatever worship is going to be at that time is what's being you know, referenced. And so uh, if it's just going to be great worship. And, and so I, uh, uh, a year later, when we had that meeting again, I had one of them at lunch and I said, you know, remember that discussion? I said, yeah. I said, uh, uh, you know, and he used the term concomitant worship. In other words, it, it, it represents, it's, it's a description of what was uh, true in the Levitical system as a symbol for what will be true in the future. And I said, my, my problem with that, and I was asking him in, 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 in great, uh, I, I, I have the utmost respect for him, I, uh, with, with, with humility, I said, you know, what I don't understand about that is that what is described here doesn't match the Levitical system. In fact, it's contrary to it. So how could it be simply an idealized worship scene when it's a violation of Mosaic law and Le Levitical law? He goes, you know what, I'd never thought about that. And so then we began to talk and I, I think almost thou, that I have almost persuaded him, but we're still having a conversation about it. Now, why do I say that that's important? Let me tell you, there's no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of this new building. That's certainly different. There's no table for the showbread described in these chapters. There's no lampstand for the holy place. There's no, no anointing of oil for the people or the place. There's no mention, are you ready for this? Of a high priesthood. Because it gets eclipsed obviously by the ultimate high priest which is the Messiah. There's no replacement priesthood from Aaron only, no high priest replacement for Aaron, only the Zadokites and their unique role. So it doesn't fit Levitical system, which tells you what? This will not be according to that law. You go, how can that be? Hebrews 7:12 said with the changing of the priesthood, there came also the necessity of the changing of the law. You see, Jesus couldn't be your high priest under Mosaic law. He's of Judah, not from Levi. And he's not from the family of Aaron. He's Judah through David. He couldn't be the priest according to the Old Testament. There had to be a changing of the law. Well, if there's a changing of the law with reference to the priesthood, I certainly can understand a change of law with reference to the articles, the implements of worship, even if it is a temple. The question comes here at this point of, well, what about sacrifices in the millennium? Isn't that a problem? Doesn't that, and here's what the opponents would say, doesn't that diminish or denigrate the death of Christ? And I go, does communion do that for you? Does the Lord's Supper denigrate the death of Christ for you? No, it celebrates the death of Christ. Why? Watch. When Hebrews is written, it says, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. If the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin under the Levitical law, then if there's blood of bulls and goats in the millennium, they won't take away sin either. Are we okay with that? Did those satisfy God? Absolutely. That's what God required. On the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice, you could approach a holy God, knowing that forgiveness was based on a substitutionary blood sacrifice. It satisfied God to do that. Why? Because it demonstrated faith. What does the Lord's Supper demonstrate? Faith. That his body and his blood alone was the expiation for my sin. That's the whole point of Hebrews. Nothing that was done daily or monthly or ritualistically yearly, even the day of atonement, though satisfying God for the year wasn't enough, only the death of Christ is sufficient. So whatever we do in the church with the Lord's table, and watch, this is intended to be funny, and whatever we do blowing it up to Jewish zealousness in a whole feast, does nothing to denigrate, but only to celebrate. And that's why sacrifices are described all the way through 
Ezekiel 40 to 48, that will be part of the sacrificial system and part of the ceremony in a millennial temple. What would it be the purpose of it? If we saw the kind of bloodshed that Israel saw, which anticipated the death of Christ, what do you think that reminder will do to our hearts to stimulate us to worship? Because it will remind us that all of that is still nothing other than a shadow and a picture of what the Savior did for you and for me. If there's sacrifices of the millennium, I think it'll be phenomenal. Do I think there will be on the basis of Ezekiel 40 to 48? He describes it. I think it's true. If there's not, and it's worship in a heavenly way that God alone does it, I'm okay with that. That won't hurt my feelings. I'll take my lead from Jesus any day at that point. Number six, the obedience that is expected from this vision was a real-life expectation that would be fulfilled. Now here, I want, I want you to see this because this is important. Uh, look at Ezekiel 43, verses 10 to 12. Ezekiel 43, 10 to 12. He says, as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. Isn't it amazing that that structure will be designed to remind them of the seriousness of sin? Just what I was saying with regard to the sacrifices. Did you catch that? Show them the plan that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and then let them measure the plan. If they're ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, and all its laws. Now watch this. And write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and, look at the last phrase, I'd underline this, and do them. What was anticipated when this gets built? They're to look at the plan, they're to observe the plan, they are to do the plan. If I didn't have those kinds of references sprinkled all the way through here, I might be a little more tempted to think this is simply an idealized vision of a great temple structure to, re to remind us of how great God is. But he tells the people who are gonna be there, who are gonna see this, this is what I want you to do with what I'm revealing. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on top of the mountain, all around shall be most holy because this is the law of the house. Number seven, the promises of the prince, and there's a lot of argument as to who the prince is versus the king versus, and I, I, I'm not gonna solve all of that for you, but you, you have what could never have happened under Old Testament law, and that is a, a somebody from Judah who is in the kingly line or family officiate at a priestly function. That was violation. In fact, Uzziah, is, that's how he got leprosy, was he intruded into the priesthood. Uh, Saul offered strange vows. He, he got smacked for that. Here, the prince is an integral part of it all. And his role in the sacrifices are different than allowed by law and therefore must be a reference to something in the future. When will a king be allowed to officiate sacrifice? Well, the book of Zechariah tells us in the vision of the coronation of Joshua, the high priest, in a visionary uh, demonstration, sort of a symbolic crowning of Joshua, the high priest, the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest in the post-exilic period, he has a crown that is made and put on him as a sign of the Messiah in whom both offices, king and priest, will one day be fulfilled. That wasn't fulfilled in an Old Testament priest and it wasn't fulfilled in an Old Testament king. But there's coming a time when the king priest officiates in the sacrificial system. We haven't had that yet. Jesus didn't officiate at the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't do that. He didn't have his chair in the gate as it describes here. 
when are you going to have the king of Israel have his chair in the structure where worship takes place and it be okay? This is, by the way, why Antichrist, the man of sin, will try to upstage Christ and will take his seat in the temple and claim to be God and be the object of worship. Where would he have gotten such a pagan idea? An imitation of what is real. Antichristos, the substitute Christ, and who is also against Christ. Number seven. Number eight, the, allotment, the, the land allotment has to be redistributed to the tribes in an unprecedented way. I think I misspelled unprecedented there, but don't hold that against me. If it's right, hey, if it's wrong, I'm sorry. In Israel's history, what, what do we mean by that? Well, you remember, if you look at the back of your map and say, here's the map at the time of the, the conquest, here's the map at the time of the settlement of the tribes, here's the 12 tribes in the land of Israel, you know a little bit about what that looks like. Two and a half tribes on the right-hand side of the Jordan, the others on the left-hand side, and it's all spread out, and it's primarily uh, divided according to a couple of things. One, the size of the tribe, the, the throwing of the lots and the boundary markers of the land, like the Jabbok River, the Arnon River, all of that is how it got divided. Let me show you a map. This is the way it's been drawn according to the scheme in uh, the book of Ezekiel. It's on a linear fashion where they sort of get a slice of the pie, if you please, up and down the land of Israel. That's never been distributed to the tribes like that. It's not true today. Has it ever been true? When, when will it look a whole lot like that? Well, when Ezekiel says, when there's a temple in Jerusalem with the prince priest in charge, that's when this will be divided. Jerusalem will be changed. The temple will be square. Uh, the city will be, have, have the temple as its center. Totally different than what we've had and what we've ever known in the history of Israel. Here's one of my favorites. Guys and gals who like to fish, fresh water will flow from the temple in Jerusalem and will refresh life in the Dead Sea. You go, where do you find that? Glad you asked. Look at chapter 47. This is so much fun. If I had the money, I would buy property on the edge of the Dead Sea for a fishing check. You say, why would you say that? Well, I have good biblical reason. Look at chapter 47. Let me get there, excuse me. Ezekiel chapter 47. Look at verse 8. Then he said to me, these waters, when he's describing what comes out of the temple, okay, and the river that flows, he said, these waters go out toward the eastern region. Now, now listen carefully. If this is heaven, this makes no sense. If this was an idealized vision that just was to be imagined, all of the concrete measurements, all of the design, all of the geographical references wouldn't really make too much sense. Listen to this one. These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down to the Arabah. Uh, then they go down toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And the waters of the sea, which is the salt sea or the dead sea, become what? Fresh. By the way, there's a tiny little in inlet into the Dead Sea today that right about a couple feet in is fresh. It comes from a place called Ein Feshka, and it's a little freshwater spring that goes in, and, and there's just a little bit of fresh water right at that edge of the Dead Sea. Well, what happens if there's a river coming from the throne of God down there? It makes it all fresh. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. Won't be Dead Sea anymore. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others will become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi, that's a historical site today, En Gedi is near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Caves four, five, and six are right there at the place called En Gedi, to Eglaim, where there will be a place for the spreading of nets. And their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Now, what's the point of that? 
God's going to show it to be miraculous. Where the river goes is fresh. Everything around it that has been for centuries dead, probably that goes all the way back to the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, scholars would believe, it will all be still salty. But the river on its bank from one side and on its other will grow all kinds of fruit for uh, trees for fruit. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every kind every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Let's go fishing in the Dead Sea. No, it'll be a sea of life. When? Why does this have to be an earthly scene and not a heavenly? Think with me, because Revelation says there will be no sea in heaven. If there is no sea in heaven, but you're gonna be able to fish in the Dead Sea someday, what's the point? It has to be between now and then. Do you understand that? Well, that takes me to number 10. I hope you will. The central issue in the rebuilding vision is the return of the glory of God. That's the whole point of this vision, is to say the the city that lost the glory, the temple that was destroyed because it lost the glory, will one day have the glory of God restored like never before. Every description in 40 to 48 supersedes by eons, so to speak, in a myriad of details, whatever Zerubbabel's temple looked like. In fact, remember what they said about Zerubbabel's temple? It didn't even look like Solomon's. I love Haggai the prophet. He was a straight line preacher. He goes, how many of you remember the, uh, the old building? Yeah. Remember the old church? Yeah. This one's about half the side. Doesn't look like much, does it? No. Pretty discouraging, isn't it? Yeah. That's Haggai chapter two. But what he's saying is that one day God's gonna shake the heavens and the earth and God's gonna fill this house with glory and the former glory will be eclipsed by the greater glory. Now watch, Zerubbabel's wasn't Solomon's. Ezekiel's is not Zerubbabel's, but the house continuity from Solomon to Zerubbabel to Ezekiel's is a theological theme that has continuity even with its different time frames. So, watch this, Ezekiel's temple versus heaven. Ezekiel's temple is constructed of wood and stone. That's not the way heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem will be constructed. Number two, Ezekiel's temple was square in its measurement. Heaven will be cubical, cubical, four square, height, length, and depth. Ezekiel's temple was a real temple, but according to Revelation, there will be no temple in heaven, why? We're gonna talk about that tomorrow morning in church. Because the Father and the Son will be the temple. If there's no temple in heaven, and yet this temple is gonna get rebuilt, and it hasn't been built yet, and it wasn't the second temple, and it wasn't Solomon's temple, Mom only left with one temple left. And that's the one that Ezekiel 40 to 48 says will be built when Messiah is on earth, reigning in Jerusalem, who also functions as king and priest. Number four, the blood sacrifices. If there are sacrifices and you have to slay animals in order to sacrifice them, but heaven says there's no death, this is not a description of heaven. This can't be an idealized heavenly city of Jerusalem. This can't even be a a new heaven and a new earth city that becomes heaven because there's no death in heaven. We saw that earlier this morning. There's a dead sea in this one that becomes alive. There's no sea at all when we get to heaven. So what am I left with? For all of these reasons, It doesn't match Solomon's description. It doesn't match Zerubbabel's description. None of the specifications, none of the priestly functions, none of the articles of sacrifice or furniture uh, are the same. It's all different. I'm left with one conclusion, and that is 
What Zechariah says is when the Messiah, the branch, would come, he would build the temple. You can look at it at Zechariah this afternoon. He will build the temple. What temple? This one. We've got the plans. We've got what implements should be in it. We've got what implements shouldn't be in it. There's a group in Israel today called the Temple Institute, and they're trying to put all the furniture and all of, the, all of this stuff together just in case God's ready to do it. Would he use them? Maybe. Maybe not. Really doesn't matter to me, but I know he's going to. For all of these reasons, different priesthood, uh, similar sacrifices, some of the same, different furniture, different construction, different period of time, We've not had the Dead Sea become alive yet. All of these descriptions have not yet happened. And according to Revelation, they don't match heaven. So I'm left with the conclusion that there must be a future for the nation of Israel, as we've been arguing throughout the weekend in the different settings. There must be the coming of the Messiah who will reign for a thousand years. Jerusalem will be the city of God, the city of truth, faithful one. That has not happened yet. The nations are going to know that Messiah is dwelling in their midst when, they, when he restores Israel to their land and the temple to its place and the city in its reconfiguration, the tribes in a different configuration. That's not a description of heaven. I'm left with the only conclusion I can come up with. And that is it hasn't happened yet. But just like the vision of destruction, the vision of reconstruction will have historical fulfillment. And for those reasons, you obviously know I'm a premillennialist. I uh, believe in a future for Israel, a thousand-year reign for Christ on the earth prior to eternity with what's going to be one of the most glorious cities, with the most glorious temple, with a phenomenal service and celebration of worship, all to the glory of God. Because as Habakkuk said, one day, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot we don't know and we don't presume to know everything without question. But thank you for what you have revealed and thank you for the hints along the way that help us understand the distinctions and the similarities, the uniqueness, as well as the continuity. Thank you that the latter glory of your house will be greater than the former. And one day, you will fill your house with glory. It certainly wasn't the case in the first advent. We look forward to it in the second. And to that end, may we be persistent in our faith and witness, knowing the future that you have revealed. We ask it in Jesus' name.